I wonder when was the last time you felt like you were at your breaking point? Maybe you felt like you were being crushed or just pressed in from every side. When was the last time that you felt like the life was just being squeezed out of you? Maybe you were crushed by a heavy weight of grief or pressed by some kind of stress or just shattered by the circumstances of your life. Maybe there was an irreparable relationship breakdown or a terminal diagnosis or the death of someone you loved. In that kind of place emotionally, I wonder where do you go and what do you do and who do you turn to? During this season of Lent, we've been walking through various accounts in the gospel written by Luke. And this morning we come to the account that's written about the night before Jesus' death. And after sharing that meal that we now talk about as the Last Supper, we know Jesus goes together with the disciples. We just read it there in Luke. And they go to the Mount of Olives. Uh, More specifically, that, that place, Matthew and Mark in their gospels refer to it as the garden called Gethsemane. And interestingly, that name Gethsemane means olive press. It was, a, it was an olive grove. That's logical. It's the place where olives are crushed to, so that they can release their oil. And that's interesting given that Jesus is about to literally be crushed so that his life might be poured out for the life of the world. And at this time, at this point, he goes to this garden, this place of crushing And not only is Jesus contemplating being crushed, thinking about, you know, what's coming, but he's actually already under a crushing weight. Here in Luke's account, if we look there um, in verse 44, Jesus is described as being in anguish. He's in so much anguish that there is sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. In Matthew's account of this same story, Jesus describes his emotional state this way. He he turns to the disciples and he says, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases that. He says that Jesus is saying, This sorrow is crushing my life out. This is Jesus in a place of extreme emotional pain. Where does he go? What does he do and to whom does he turn? Oh, we see, we just read it. He goes to this garden to pray. And that's what we're thinking about this morning. We've been considering various spiritual practices during Lent. We started with the way of worship and then last week we came to the way of compassion. And this week we're thinking about the way of prayer but of course, this, this, is, this is not just any passage on prayer. This passage really gives us a window into Jesus' prayer on a day when he is under an extreme crushing weight of pain. It was a year ago during Lent that Melinda asked me to teach on the practice of prayer. You probably don't remember that at all, maybe, but I remember it very vividly uh, because (laughs) I said to God, really? Um, Because I I, I honestly confess that I think I'm the least qualified person in the room to teach on prayer. And so when Nate asked me, this year, could I teach on the week of the practice the way of prayer? I didn't tell him what I really thought, but I thought all sorts of things. Um, Like, really? Again, you've got to be kidding Um, But instead, what I did is I opened this text 
Um, and unfortunately, then I saw these two pictures. You've got there, there's Jesus. He's praying fervently, like so fervently, he's sweating like drops of blood. And then there's this disciples and he's invited them to pray. You could say they're supposed to be praying, but they're fast asleep. And I thought about this and I thought, I am the disciples. This, like that's actually me. How often have I wanted to be praying, but I've just fallen asleep. Now, I don't know about you, if you identify more with Jesus or with the disciples, I'm pretty sure I'm still the least qualified person in the room to teach on prayer. But with time, as I pondered this text, of course, what I found here was not a guilt trip for all of my failings, but just a gracious invitation to experience more of the beauty of God and to know his incredible kindness and comfort during times of suffering and pain. And so this morning, we're going to look at this text together. We'll consider it and we'll learn as much as we can about the way of prayer, but particularly praying during our times of suffering and pain when we are feeling crushed or pressed or just in a place of deep despair. We're going to do it by looking at four different aspects of the way of prayer. And if you want to follow it, I've got a very brief outline in the Bible app. Um, You can feel free to go go to that. And otherwise, I'm going to walk us through it. So let's go back to verse 39. So Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. We're going to think first here about the way of community. I wonder what you would do if you knew you were facing your own death. Have you ever been asked that really strange question, what would be your last meal if you were on death row? I mean, that's a really strange question. Apparently, it's a thing in places where the death penalty is used. People awaiting their execution get to choose their last meal. Um, In the case where you're not being executed, I guess that's just a strange way that people might ask, um, you know, what your favourite meal is. A very strange question. But I've always thought if I was actually about to be executed, I'm just not sure that I would care that much about what I was going to eat. In fact, I think I'd feel so anxious I probably couldn't eat anything at all. But what I know I would be concerned about if I was about to die would be who I was with. If I knew I was going to die, I would want to choose not a meal but the people, to be with the people who I love. So I'm really intrigued about the way that Luke's, Luke writes his account of Jesus and who he is with on the night before he knows he's going to be executed. Because he's just shared a meal with the disciples. They are his closest friends. Um, but I kind of think it would be fair if at that point, after the meal, in this place of extreme emotional distress, if Jesus just disappeared on his own for a bit. But Luke tells us that as he goes to the Mount of Olives, the disciples follow him. Now, I don't know whether he wants them to follow or not, but Jesus doesn't send them away, which I think is pretty gracious. And instead, he allows them to stay with him and he invites them to pray. In this terrible time where he's in a place of deep pain, Jesus chooses the way of community. 
Luke explains that Jesus invites the disciples to pray for themselves. We read it there in verse 40. Um, But I love Matthew in his account. He adds this other extra little bit to the story because there's 11 disciples there. By this point, we know Judas has run off. He's about to betray Jesus. But the other 11 are there. But Jesus just takes, he turns to Peter, James, and John. And he just, he leaves the others and he just draws away with them a little bit. And once he's just there with the three of his closest friends, then he tells them how he's really feeling. It's that line I read before. He turns to them and he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This pain is crushing me. And then he asks them to stay here and keep watch with me. He's asking those in his community who are closest to him to pray with him. When things in life feel like they're just falling apart, prayer can often feel really inaccessible. Last year when our baby Fletcher was born, we were told by the doctors when he was four days old that it just didn't seem like he was going to live. And so they invited us to get our families into the ICU. They couldn't get access before that, but they gave us permission to get all your family into the hospital. They'll need to say goodbye. And they made moves toward palliative care. During those horrendous days... I lived in some sort of numb state where I could just barely find the words for the everyday, let alone find the words to pray. And sometime later, when Fletcher had started making some improvements, uh, we were gifted this really beautiful knitted blanket by Dalip and May. And when I read the card that explained how May had prayed for Fletcher whilst knitting the blanket, I felt just so incredibly grateful for our family here at Richmond because during those days when I had no words to utter for my son, others here in our community were carrying him to God in prayer. And I don't knit, but May, there's a lot of knits, stitches, whatever you call it, in that blanket. And so I know, I know you really prayed for Fletcher. It was so beautiful. If you're in a time where you're feeling crushed by grief or sorrow, I wonder if you're experiencing the blessings of community. It requires a depth of connection with community, doesn't it, to experience that and a certain openness. Sometimes I think um, that can mean inviting the wider community into our place of pain. I thought it was really beautiful how Megan and Adrian shared with us, even though they're miles and miles away, we know they're really close in our hearts. And the fact that they shared with us how they've recently lost their baby just allows us to carry them to God in prayer, even while we're not there with them physically, to hug them or care for them. Uh, But sometimes it just means opening up to a smaller circle, doesn't it? Just as Jesus did with his close friends. Um, Perhaps sometimes it means just letting your gospel group know that you're in a place of pain and allowing them to carry you to the Father. The way of community can certainly be a way to prayer on days when we just don't have prayers of our own. And another way that I've known the blessing of community during the difficult times of the last 12 months has been through praying the words of others. Sometimes I think when we have no words of our own, it can be helpful to still try to utter prayers and just to use the words that others have written. Uh, That sort of liturgy, uh, which was once commonplace in lots of churches, has gone a bit out of vogue in some spaces in the modern church, perhaps in part because those corporately uttered responsive kind of prayers can sometimes feel like they're a bit lacking in heart or sincerity. You know, you're just kind of going through the motions. Um, But I've certainly found that the Holy Spirit can often bring the words of others to life in really meaningful ways, especially on those days when I just don't have words of my own. 
Some months back, Nate mentioned an app. Some of you might be using it called Lectio 365. If you haven't tried it, it's, it's really simple. It provides a scripture reading and some prayers. There's one for the morning, one for the night. And you can either read them or I love there's a function. You can just play it and it's just read over you. And I've just found that praying with the words of others can be so helpful on those days when I just feel emotionally spent or really spiritually empty. The way of prayer during those crushing days can be a way that involves community. Secondly, we're going to think about the way of solitude. Uh, Look now at verse 41. It says that Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and he knelt down and prayed. So Jesus is in this garden. He's there with his disciples, those closest to him. But now Luke tells us that he intentionally withdrew. He goes just a bit further, actually, to be alone. If you've been following the Lent readings through the book of Luke, you may have noticed this as a pattern. He doesn't just do it on this day. Actually, throughout the years of Jesus' ministry, Luke notes how often Jesus withdrew to a quiet place. And seemingly the busier Jesus got, the more often he withdrew. Sometime back, our family went to stay with some friends in their holiday home. And I remember when we got there, they were were showing us around, just, you know, pointing out where things were. And they pointed to this small side balcony on the house where there was just one deck chair. And they said, oh, that's, that's the introvert space. And if someone goes out there, you know, don't bother them, don't talk to them, unless you're going to offer them a drink or give them something to eat. And I remember receiving some sort of like knowing looks and nudges, like, you know, Janice, it's probably the space for you because I am quite an introvert and I sometimes just reach my limit, my overload with, with people time. And at face value, when we read about about Jesus withdrawing, you know, during the years of his ministry, it could seem he just gets a bit of people overload and he just wants to be alone for a bit, have a bit of me time. But of course, the practice of solitude is something far deeper than that because Jesus withdraws from human company, but he does it to be in the presence of God. He wants to be with the Father. He doesn't want to be alone. That's a habit that he cultivated on the ordinary, which seems then to be a practice that is is his go-to on the hardest of days. I wonder if the practice of solitude is something that you and I are cultivating. We live in a world that's so saturated with noise and distraction that finding solitude is hard. Even when we have a quiet moment, it can be really hard to fight the natural urge to just reach for some kind of noise or distraction. The point of solitude is to disconnect from all the other demands of life in order to find connection with God. It has nothing to do with being an introvert or an extrovert. It's not just some me time. It's a place where relationship with God is really cultivated. Learning to relish the solitude, to actually still our bodies and our hearts and our minds for long enough to behold the goodness of God can be really hard when we're just so wired toward noise and action. But Jesus in his life shows us why solitude is a practice that we should fight for and grow into the goodness of. It's possible to pray, to talk with God while we're driving, while we're cooking, while we're working or cleaning or whatever else, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's something we should do. But if we compare, if we compare cultivating a relationship with God to a human relationship, 
I was thinking about it. I thought, oh, yeah, I can converse with my husband whilst I'm cooking, working, whatever, doing all of those things. But on the days that they are the only moments that we talk, I find myself feeling really disconnected in our relationship and just longing for the quiet moments when we can really talk and connect more deeply. And so it is in our relationship with God. Without those times of solitude, we can kind of have that surface sort of relationship, but it's very difficult to cultivate any real depth of connection, the kind of heart connection that we're really going to yearn for on the hard days. Now, depending on the current shape of your life, carving out a space for solitude might just sound like a bit of a joke. I, I did laughed myself as I was writing this because, you know, my idea of some solitude would be silence. I'd just be in a really clean, quiet, calming kind of space. I'd probably have a nice warm cup of coffee because surely God likes to drink a good cup of coffee. And, you know, finding any of those things or all of those things simultaneously in our house, that's just not really going to happen. I live with three beautiful and rambunctious teenagers and a baby with complex needs and that's, that's a, <laughs> that picture is a far cry from what I'm probably going to find in my house. And in my current quest for solitude, I have to remember the goal. What's the goal? The goal is to disconnect from the noise of life to cultivate connection with God. So, For me at the moment, the closest I can get on most days is with some of my small choices. Um, Fletcher and I usually take a long walk first thing in the morning in the hopes that one of us will sleep for a while. Um, And while we're walking, I really like to listen to podcasts, um, often to sermons. I find them really life-giving, really helpful. But sometimes for me, that's going to be the place of solitude. And so creating space for connection and communion with God will just mean turning it off for a while to embrace the relative quiet and choosing to turn my heart and my thoughts toward God. So what what could a space of solitude look like for you in your life at the moment? The way of prayer during crushing days is a way that will require some solitude. Thirdly, we come to the way of honesty. Uh, We look there at verse 42, just at the first bit where Jesus now prays and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. So this is a little window into the conversation between Jesus and his father. What do you say on the incredibly difficult days? If you were about to die, what would you pray? Jesus asks his father to take this cup away. And that's probably funny language in our um, modern vernacular, but the cup is an image often used in the Bible to refer to some kind of suffering or, more specifically, often to experiencing the wrath of God. So in this case, the cup is that Jesus is about to bear the sins of the world and suffer the wrath of God. He's going to die and be forsaken by his father. And Jesus turns to his father and he's saying, please don't make me do it. Now, I can't really wrap my head around the weightiness of that. And certainly I think there's an element of mystery here. We understand Jesus is fully human 
and yet he's fully God simultaneously. That's a mystery I can't unravel. But in his full humanity, Jesus says he cannot bear the pain of what he knows is about to come. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to this point he's existed for all eternity in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And now he's not only contemplating physical pain and social humiliation, but he's somehow getting his head around the ultimate loneliness that will come as he's separated by sin from his father. Now that's a lot to wrap your head around. But also I can't really understand Jesus' prayer because from the get-go of his ministry, of his time on earth, he knows what he's here for. He knows that the end point of his time on earth is that he's going to die. He's already explained to the disciples several times that he's now going to be crucified. It seems to me like a given. So why ask the father to take the cup away if he knows that that's the father's plan? I don't know. But I think there's something in there about the fact that their relationship is not a static one. It's actually not, you know, it's not just some sort of motionless existence. The Father and the Son and the Spirit exist in a beautiful, dynamic and lively relationship. And I think it's one where Jesus can go to his Father and just express his honest thoughts and feelings. So crushed by the weight of what is ahead of him, Jesus can just go to his father and say how he really feels. Please, can you find another way? I can't bear this. Maybe we've sometimes had so much emphasis in the church on the idea that God's in control and he's got a plan, he's going to work it out, that we can just feel like regardless of what you or I say, what's the point of asking uh, asking God to do something in prayer. If he's already got it worked out, why would I bother to ask for anything anyway? I think too often we forget that God is truly relational. He's a relational being, not a disconnected dictator, and he does respond to the prayers of his people. Too often we don't really believe that God is interested in our thoughts and feelings. And so I think sometimes we miss the blessing of the way of honesty, of just coming before the Father as Jesus does and simply laying out our feelings and our desires unfiltered. I've been listening to a book by Kate Bowler. The book's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It's really been hitting a spot for me at the moment. And in her book, she documents the year when she received a sudden diagnosis of stage four cancer that seemed at that point really untreatable. And, you know, she's got a small, she's got a young son, husband, and she's contemplating her death. And um, she documents all sorts of things about that year, including all the hard things, the the unhelpful things that people say to her. Um, And in that time, she just talks about her prayers really just being reduced to these occasional utterings of save me, save me, save me. That's about all she's got. And in that year of diagnosis and treatment and all the pain that comes along with it, physical and emotional, uh, when she gets to the season of Lent, She's a Christian, she's a writer, she's a, I don't know, some sort of theologian researcher. Anyway, you know, like she's 
She's the real deal. Um, but when in that horrendous year, she gets to Lent, and I was listening to it because it's very hard to read in my current life, and um, I heard her say, I got to Lent, and I took up the practice of cursing. Um, and she's Canadian or American or something, you know, lovely accent. And I was like replaying it, thinking, the practice of what? This is not a Lenten practice I've heard of before. And... Um, And she gives an example of her practice of cursing. And I was like, wow, she took up swearing for Lent. Um, And when I heard her say that, I have to confess that I simultaneously laughed and cried because there was just something about her complete raw honesty, about how she felt about everything and the way that she just let it out that really hit me. Now, I know that Nate's currently scratching me from the preaching roster because it sounds like I'm saying we should take up some cursing and swearing for Lent. Um, that isn't, that's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am asking is I just wonder how our relationship with God would change if we could learn to be really honest about how we were feeling. If we stopped saying the things we thought we were supposed to say and we developed a relationship of true intimacy where we just confessed honestly, to our thoughts and our feelings, positive and negative. Now, that might sound really irreverent to you, and I am not for a minute suggesting that in prayer we should forget that we have the incredible privilege of being invited into the very presence of the Creator God and all of the gravity that that holds. But if you've ever read the Psalms, you'll agree that the Bible contains all sorts of of honest utterings, and some of them at face value just sound highly inappropriate. Are the one I, I always like read it twice and think, what? The one where the psalmist is calling for the, his enemies' babies to have their heads dashed against the rocks. I, not not highly appropriate, but that's how he's feeling, and that's what he cries out to God on that day. The very pages of Scripture remind us that God invites our honesty. Just lay it all out. Express the really hard feelings as well as the good ones. So the way of prayer during crushing days should be a way of honesty. And finally, we come to the way of surrender. It's there in the second half of verse 42. Having asked his father to take the cup away, then Jesus says, Yet not my will, but yours be done. Please don't make me bear this, but I trust you. I trust you with whatever happens. I think one of the biggest roadblocks in the way of prayer for many people is that obstacle of unanswered prayer, a feeling like God is just silent in response to your prayers or he just doesn't seem to agree with you on the things that matter the most to you. Isn't it interesting what happens in response to Jesus' prayer? He asks the Father to take the cup away. And then verse 43, we read, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. So he receives the strength that he needs to keep going. But then we know how the story unfolds. God does not take the cup away from him. He pours it out. A short time later, Jesus is crucified. Is that not the biggest no to a prayer of all time? The son comes to the father, he asks, take it away, but he doesn't. We could see that as the biggest unanswered prayer. And yet somehow the relationship between Jesus and the father is not broken. Their intimacy is maintained. 
unanswered prayer can be really crushing in itself. Uh, If you somehow feel like your relationship with God is somehow broken because of all the prayers, he seems, seems like he hasn't answered. I think that it's a thing, it's a topic that needs a lot more discussion than we have time for this morning. If it has been a, a big roadblock in the way of prayer for you, there's a book I found really helpful that, that you might want to go to. It's by a guy called Pete Grieg and it's called God on Mute. Uh, he's a man who went through some incredibly challenging times and he explores the problem of unanswered prayer. It might be something that you want to read. But just now, I want us to finish by thinking about Jesus' heart posture toward his Father. He speaks honestly what's in his own heart, but then at the same time, we see his desire is still to know his Father's heart. He pours out the depths of his crushing pain, but ultimately, he wants what his Father wants. Somehow, he loves and trusts his Father so deeply that he can fully surrender his own desires to his father's plans. Can you identify with that? I don't know if I can. When Fletcher was in ICU, I remember watching Brad standing there praying over him and just wondering why I couldn't seem to utter anything even in my heart. I think I was just so scared that Fletcher was going to die that I just couldn't bear to ask God to save him if he was just going to let him die anyway. I couldn't quite bear to surrender my own desires, fearing that they wouldn't align with God's desires. So I look at this, I look at Jesus, and I just think, what would it be like to know the Father's heart so deeply as Jesus does that you could just trust him completely. You could just lay out your feelings honestly and then surrender your own desires to God. That's something that I want. I really want to know God more and more in all of his loving kindness and compassion to know that kind of surrender. Sometimes my goal, our goal, I'm guessing, in our prayers is primarily to get all of our needs met. You know, we lay it out before God, and that's not a bad thing, but how would things shift if our goal was more to know God's heart, for him to know our hearts, but for us to know his? What if we could give God all our feelings and tell God our honest desires, but then give him our trust? I'm going to hand over to Nate, who's going to lead us in a prayer practice. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Janice. Um, All the way through Lent, we have been uh, intentionally exploring these way practices that we've been talking about so that it's not just theory, Uh, But what's something practical that we can do as a response to that? And so today we are going to explore the way of prayer uh, through the model that we see outlined to us. And so uh, I'm going to ask my helpers to come. Yes, thank you, Rachel and Levi. And if we have another couple of people who want to help as well, uh, we've got a whole bunch of these pieces of paper uh, which have the prayer broken down with some reflection questions. And so it's kind of each verse from the passage with then a question to be able to reflect on. And if you need a pen, we have some pens as well. 
Uh, and so we're going to hand them out to you and then give you a few minutes to be able to just sit and to be able to write some reflections down uh, around this model of what we see uh, Jesus giving us and the themes that Janice has been exploring with us. What we're going to do uh, is after this, we're going uh, am I still coming through? Yes. Um, what we're going to do after this is to uh, then give space in here to continue to explore that. So um, as I said, we'll kind of give you five minutes or so. There'll be some background music on. Uh, but then we're going to kind of say if you want to then go and chat with some people and move into the next part of our gathering, grab a coffee, then we'll invite you to do that out in the cafe space so that we can leave this space for people who want to continue to reflect or if you're really, really courageous to spend some time praying with someone else. Because as Janice talked about, it's not just for us to do this on our own. We are a part of a community and a family. And so if it's helpful for you, you can feel free to find someone else and to be able to spend some time praying something that comes out of that with them. So we want to leave this space available for people to be able to do that. Um, So as these come around, uh, you can feel free. As I said, there'll be some background music on. Write some reflections down and then I'll come back in a few minutes uh, to release you if you've had enough of doing this, (laughs) Uh, but also to leave some space in here.